Welcome to the Barnes Review History Hour. This is your host, John Friend. Today is Thursday, November 16th, 2023. The Barnes Review History Hour is a program featuring contributors to the Barnes Review History Magazine, a bi-monthly print and digital publication dedicated to bringing history into accord with the facts, as well as other special guests. Please do consider subscribing to the magazine if you are not already. Check out barnesreview.org for all the details. All right, today I'm joined by Dr. Jim Fetzer, a leading researcher into the JFK assassination, among other controversial topics. All right, Dr. Jim Fetzer, welcome to the program, sir. How are you today? I'm very good, John, and I'm just uh, very impressed with the Barnes Review and the excellent selection of authors and contributions you have in the special issue devoted to the 60th observance of the assassination. Yeah, thank you so much. I appreciate that. That means a lot to me. Um, I'm sure many of our listeners are well aware of your work over the years, but of course you are um, a former U.S. Marine. You are a former professor. You're actually a professor emeritus of the philosophy of science at the University of Minnesota Duluth, and you are a leading researcher of the JFK assassination, as well as the events of 9-11 and a variety of other very controversial and taboo topics. You have done some pioneering research into all sorts of quote-unquote conspiracy theories, and you know, you've know you really paved the way in the pursuit of truth and understanding complex historical and contemporary events. Um, now, we have done numerous interviews over the years, but we've never actually done an interview for the Barnes Review History Magazine, which is a bi-monthly print and digital revisionist history magazine that is dedicated to bringing history into accord with the facts in the tradition of Dr. Harry Elmer Barnes, which is a mission that I am fully on board with, and I'm sure you are as well, Dr. Fetzer. Um, So yeah, go ahead. 100%, John, and let me say I've pioneered collaborative research by bringing together the best experts to sort out these complex and controversial issues. In the case of JFK, where I began in 1992, I brought together World Authority on the Human Brain, who was also an expert on wound ballistics, a PhD in physics, who was also an MD, and board certified in radiation oncology, so he's an expert in the interpretation of x-rays, a physician who was in trauma room number one when JFK's moribund body was brought in, another expert on the JFK photos and films, another PhD in physics with a background in electromagnetism, the properties of light and of images of moving objects, who did the most brilliant work on the Zapruder film and internal features that prove it's a fabrication by taking original sources and then editing and revising them to produce what we have today. So... What I represent is a distillation of this collaborative research. And while I began with JFK, I've done founded scholars for 9-11, Truth Replicated with 9-11, did research on Senator Paul Wellstone, whose plane went down just 60 miles north of my office on the Duluth campus of the University of Minnesota while I was still in residence there. And then a succession of false flag attacks that have been sold to the public as real Sandy Hook, Boston bombing, Orlando and Dallas, Charlottesville, Parkland, Las Vegas, Uvalde, uh, Nashville, uh, Buffalo. It's just astonishing. And I've been able to bring together truly excellent people. 
And you can find, for those who want to dig deeper, you can find a lot of that on my BitChute channel, Jim Fetzer, John. I'm just delighted and impressed with Barnes' review because I share 100% their revisionist historical objectives. Good. Yeah, no, I'm glad to hear that. And thank you for the endorsement. Um, and you mentioned your BitChute channel. I will have that linked when I post this podcast program. And I will also have your Twitter profile linked. Well, I guess it's X now. Um, I'll have that linked. And then, of course, your website. Your website's jameshfetzer.org. And I do follow that pretty closely. Um, now, we, you, we've been talking about the Barnes Review. And, and I mentioned it's a bi-monthly print and digital history magazine. We actually just published the November-December 2023 issue of the magazine. And it should have arrived to all print subscribers already. I have heard from a couple people, including yourself, um, that they have not received the magazine. So we're working on fixing that and making sure everybody gets their copy. I know I received my copy at the very beginning of November, like right on schedule. Um, but well, I understand not everybody has been as fortunate, I guess, as me. So we're working on uh, that. Yeah. Let me just add, John, the quality of the magazine in terms of its production values is outstanding. I have extensive experience with journals. I founded an international journal, Minds and Machines. I've been on editorial boards of many journals. And I just tell you, the quality of this magazine is exceptional. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, I've been a subscriber since like 2012 or 2013. And I've always been very, very impressed with the magazine, uh, the various contributors we've had over the years. Um, we were lucky enough to get an article that, that you wrote published in this November, December issue of the magazine, which we're going to be talking about in some detail today. Um, this current issue, if you go to the website, barnsreview.org, and of course I'll have this linked and I'll have a, an image of the cover of the magazine when I post this podcast program. But the cover is actually um, featuring, it's, it's, it's basically highlighting our featured story, which was written by um, a longtime contributor to the magazine, a man named Mark Rowland. And that article is titled, 1913, The Year That Sealed America's Fate which is a topic we really will not be addressing at length in this podcast today. I will be doing a follow-up podcast to discuss this article in more detail. But um, the, the November-December 2023 issue, it does feature a number of important articles dealing with various aspects of the JFK assassination, including, as I mentioned, an article that you wrote, Dr. Fetzer, that I thought turned out very, very well. It's a very thorough assessment of what really happened on November 22nd, 1963, excuse me, and what we know now that we may not have known back then about the JFK assassination. And I wanted to kind of start off by asking you, I mean, you sort of introduced yourself, and I'm sure most people listening are familiar with your work on JFK and 9-11 and, you know, any number of other topics. You have a regular radio program, you write extensively. Um, so I'm sure most people are familiar with your work, and you've kind of already given us a little bit of a, you know, background details, but I'd really actually like to ask you, um, could you explain where you were on November 22nd, 1963, and how you became interested in researching the JFK assassination? What made you sort of question the official narrative, so to speak? Well, I was commissioned as second lieutenant in the Marine Corps when I graduated from Princeton in 1962. Magna cum laude in philosophy. I was anchored out in Kaohsiung Harbor the day of the assassination where the officer of the deck awakened me at 3.30 in the morning to tell me the president had been shot. 
and then awakened me an hour later to tell me they'd caught the guy who'd done it, that he was a communist. I thought then, John, that was pretty fast work, and I know today, of course, exactly why. Just as Lee proclaimed, he was a patsy, they had him framed, and we've been able to dissemble the way in which it was done, the parties involved, and how the the fraud was perpetrated on a gullible American public. Remember, at that time, television was a novelty. In fact, it was this event that made television the mainstay of every home in America following the events of the assassination. And ironically, two shots were rightly reported that afternoon. A shot to the throat, a small, clean puncture wound that Malcolm Perry, MD, described as a wound of entry three different times during the Parkland press conference that was held there after the president's death was announced by Malcolm Kilduff, the acting press secretary, and the other a shot to the right temple. In fact, when Kilduff announces, he points his finger to his right temple and says it was a simple matter of a bullet right through the head. Uh, attributing that finding to Admiral George Berkeley, the president's personal physician. And this is all being reported on radio and television in considerable detail that day, such that when later the story starts to dribble in that the FBI and the Secret Service have decided there was one shooter above and behind and only three shots, Frank McGee, who is nobody's fool, says this is incongruous. How can the man have been shot from in front? from behind. And that was an right. issue the commission had to deal with and why I think the public was so profoundly skeptical when about a year later they released a report claiming such a simple scenario that was contradicted by those reports they'd witnessed with their own eyes and ears during the event is reporting that day. Yeah, yeah, no, that's I, I and honestly, like I don't think a lot of people realize that that the day of the assassination, I mean the you know the, the the press conference you're you're referencing basically totally contradicts the later official conspiracy theory, the official narrative explaining the assassination, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because you have two shots fired from in front, and then if you put them together with the shots of why the Warren Commission admitted there was a shot to the back that was a first hit on Jack, five and a half inches below the collar, just to the right of the spinal column, a shallow shot. It only went in about as far as the second knuckle on your little finger. Turns out it worked its way out. It was actually discovered by Sam Kinney, who was a driver for the Secret Service limousine at Parkland when he was given a bucket and sponge and asked to clean it up, which was a destruction of evidence. I mean, that was improper from the get-go. But he found the whole slug and took it in and left it on a stretcher, which means... There never was a foundation for the magic bullet theory. It was just an elaborate hoax. In fact, David W. Manick, MD, PhD, who's the leading expert on the medical evidence long ago, demonstrated that the alleged trajectory was anatomically impossible because if you plot the alleged entry at the back of the neck and then where it's supposed to have exited at the throat to turn that entry wound into an exit, cervical vertebrae intervene. It was, it's not even anatomically possible. It's that bad. So when they do their reconstructions, they'll use a, a gelatin mold of a body, but it lacks the feature that caused Jack to die, namely their skeleton. They have no backbone. So they just use a gelatin mold, a bullet easy passed through to create the illusion that a bullet had gone through Jack's neck and then hit Conley, shattered a rib, exited, gone into his right wrist and wound up in his left eye. It is true 
that Conley was hit in the back himself, but it was by a separate bullet. And it is true that Jack was hit in the back of the head after the driver, William Greer, brought the limousine to a halt to make sure he would be killed because he'd suffered those the, the, the shot to the throat and the shot to the back, but those were non-fatal. After he was brought to a halt, he was hit in the back of the head. He slumped poor Jack, eased him back up, was looking him right in the face, was hit in the right temple by that shot that blew his brains out the back of his head with such force that when the impacted officer Bobby Hargis riding to the left rear, he thought he himself had been shot. So already you have an outline of the big picture of what happened to Jack and Dealey Plaza that day. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. Well, I, I want to ask you, I mean, the official narrative, like this, the idea of a lone gunman, um, could you maybe just sort of outline the official narrative and address, like, is there any aspect of it that's actually true at all? The only aspect that turns out to be true is that Jack Kennedy was assassinated in Dealey Plaza on 22 November 1963. The rest of it is totally fabricated. Lee Oswald actually was an agent of the United States. He was recruited by the Office of Naval Intelligence when he was a recruit in San Diego. He was stationed at Sugi, which was our most secure base. If there didn't question about his loyalty, he would never have been stationed there. It was a source of the U-2 overflights across the Soviet unions, which they knew were taking place, but they didn't know the altitude because he was a radar out, uh, operator and had that information. He, he pursued a pseudo-defection to the Soviet Union at the request of the CIA to provide them with that information. There was a looming summit between Eisenhower and uh, Khrushchev that was expected to reduce world tensions. But shortly before, Khrushchev accused the United States of spying. Eisenhower dutifully denied, and then he... Khrushchev presumes parts of the U-2 and the pilot who had not taken his cyanide mill. Mission accomplished. The summit was aborted and Cold War tensions increased rather than diminished. And that was Lee Oswald's doing. And then he returned to the U.S. He was greeted by a CIA front organization, gave him money to relocate to New Orleans while his, his wife, Maria, went to Dallas and unbeknownst to her was with a Payne family who had ties to the CIA so they could manage. And then Ruth Payne arranges for Lee to get a job at a book depository just weeks before the assassination. So they located the Patsy at the scene where the crime would be committed. Very interesting. So, yeah, and, and I wanted to actually ask you a little bit more about um, Lee Harvey Oswald uh, maybe we could hold off and, and we'll address that in just a, in just a few moments. But I do have some questions about his background and this idea that there could have been multiple people playing the character of Lee Harvey Oswald. I, I'm, which... I'm glad to hit that right now, John. I'm. Uh... Well, let me just. OK, yeah, let, let's do that. Let me just mention that um, there is an article uh, by Pat Shannon in this issue um, addressing this this theory it's called the, the title of the article is lee and harvey the controversial theory of the two oswalds revisited and it sort of addresses this idea that there were either two or maybe even more i, th I mean in the, the article specifically talks about two separate individuals playing the role of lee harvey oswald um do you think there's anything to this idea well let me address first and foremost we have to distinguish between oswald impersonators such as the one who went to the 
automobile dealership and drove a car at high speed to scare the wits out of salesmen and said he was going to be coming into a lot of money and he'd buy a Russian car. He liked them better. Or another impersonator was on a rifle range and fired on a target of someone else. And when the guy complained, he said, oh, sorry, I was thinking it was Kennedy. Those were all stunts to implicate Lee as though he had the motivation. He actually was a genuine American. He was even an FBI informant. The reason we had so much trouble getting his W-2 form is it showed he was receiving $200 a month from the government for his role as an informant for the FBI. Now, the two Oswald theory, which was introduced by a fellow named John Armstrong especially, though he may not have been the real originator, is so far-fetched. And I'm convinced what happened is the following. The CIA builds a fake history and background, education, the whole bit for its operatives, so when they return to civilian life, they can have a background and credentials, a real history. I believe Armstrong mistook the history, the fabricated history the CIA developed for Lee and presented it as though it were a second Oswald. I do not believe there was a second Oswald. I've done research on this issue with Judith Barry Baker, who had an affair with Lee the summer before the assassination. She's very skilled and adept at research. And we found a number of mistakes about claims of, you know, two blazes at the same time that actually turned out not to be defensible. So, in my opinion, in order to establish that there were two Oswald, you'd actually have to establish there were three, namely the real Lee, who was arrested and shot and killed and accused of being the assassin, the background, the phony background, Lee Oswald, which is a fictional entity, and then the second Oswald, but I've never seen any evidence that what John Armstrong or others may have thought was the second Oswald was other than the CIA's fabricated background for him to return to civilian life. Interesting. Okay, so th- this was th- this alleged second Oswald, in your opinion, was more of a, a, f- a fictitious character on paper rather than an actual person? Yeah, but it was very detailed. See, I mean, the CIA is very specific. I mean, they have names, dates, locations, schools, education, history for to give, uh, basically it's to provide an alibi for their agents when they return to civilian life. I mean, it's all there and it's all very detailed and it has the ring of authenticity, even though it is, in fact, a fabrication. Interesting. Okay. Um, well, I would encourage people to check out the article by Pat Shannon and, and kind of make up their own mind. It's an interesting idea, and there is there is a lot to it. I certainly don't know one way or the other, but it's an interesting interesting idea, an interesting angle to the whole assassination conspiracy. Um, now, Lee Harvey Oswald, you, you've talked about him being in bed with the CIA, being an FBI informant. What exactly was he doing for the FBI? What exactly was he doing for the CIA? Well, as I say, the most important task he performed for the CIA was a pseudo-defection to the Soviet Union, so he could give them information about the altitude of the U-2 overflights. So he so was he was faking he was faking being a Soviet defector, right? Like he was okay, Absolutely. like an undercover operative. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's exactly right. And then we came back. He's met by a CIA front organization, gave him money to relocate to New Orleans and Maria to Dallas with the pains. When he's in New Orleans, that he's been sheep sheep dipped. He's been given a new persona 
as a pro-Castro communist sympathizer handing out flyers, they contrive a, a fight that just happened to be televised. You just happen to have the TV screen there. I mean, this is all very well portrayed in Oliver Stone's magisterial film, JFK, released in 1991, which is the closest thing to what actually happened in Dealey Plaza that has ever been presented to the public through the mass media with three caveats. Number one, uh, Oliver did not know that Lee Oswald was actually in the doorway of the book depository when the motorcade passed by, and therefore not only cannot have been the lone demanded gunman, but cannot have been one of the, we have now determined, eight different shooters were each of the sponsors of the event put up their own hitman. I can go through that in detail. Number two, he, he did not know the Zapruder film had been extensively edited he thought it was basically authentic. And third, he posited three hit teams when, as I've already implied, there were, in fact, eight altogether, one for each of the sponsors. Now, I believe that happened because it was being advised by Robert Grodin, who was a very well-known, very prominent, well-published expert on JFK at the time. But just to get a little background on Grodin, when the House Select Committee sought to investigate what they were you know, rumors they'd heard that Lee had been in the doorway. They asked Grodin to investigate him. Mean, it's very odd. Grodin actually went about fabricating evidence to make it look as though the person in the doorway was not Lee, but Billy Lovelady, a co-worker. But just to show you how far he went, he had uh, Billy put on a red and black checkered long sleeve shirt, kind of a flannel shirt, and photographs, because it was a figure that doesn't look like Billy. He, I call him the gorilla man because he's got such a primitive countenance, as though that had been the man in the doorway. But the fact is that the FBI had called Billy Lovelady in on the 29th of February, 1964, wearing the clothing he'd worn at the time. He was wearing a short-sleeved red and white vertically striped shirt and blue jeans. So they took photographs of him. So Grodin had to know he was perpetrating a fraud, but that's what the House Select Committee wanted to hear, and they bought it hook, line, and sinker. He, along with Josiah Thompson, by the way, have insisted to this day that the Zapruder film is authentic. In, in fact, we have extensive proof of how it was altered, some of the most brilliant work having been done by John P. Costello, Ph.D., yeah, very interesting. Now, you're referring to the photograph taken by James Altgens, correct? The AP photographer? Oh, that's where the... Lee was captured in the yeah. background. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that's one of the more iconic photos associated with the assassination. And there's been this big debate. Was it Lee in the doorway? Was it not? You're saying it was absolutely Lee in the doorway. Oh, yeah. Therefore, he could not have been, you know. Yeah. It, yeah. He couldn't have John failed. Hunter, yeah, and and it looks like him. And we actually have a photo in the in the magazine, you know, of, 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 like sort of zoomed yeah. in. Yeah, and it. I think it's pretty clear that it is in fact Oswald. Well, he had the same height, the same weight, the same build. He was wearing a similar shirt and overshirt. Uh, Richard Hook originally began noting the similarities between Oswald when he was arrested because he was the same height, the same weight, the same build, the same shirt, the same overshirt. He began noticing like six or seven similarities, but by the time he got done, he'd found over a hundred. It is the same guy. 
Ralph Sinkay was a chiropractor, and he's used to deal with people who want to get their body in shape so their clothes will fit better, was really the key to turn me on to the realization that we knew it was Lee from those properties, but where Larry Rivera has done further work by doing uh, imposition of facial features on Lee and on Billy, and they feed, fit Oswald to a T, and they do not fit Billy. I mean, but look, we knew it wasn't Billy anyway because he was wearing that short sleeve red and white vertically striped shirt. He doesn't bear any resemblance to the tattered, rather finely woven shirt that Maria, by the way, is sad. She remembered having laundered. Yeah, that's fascinating. So this is another huge piece of evidence totally disproving the lone gunman narrative solidified by the Warren Commission report, correct? Yeah, absolutely. And John, I, I, when we were doing research on this, I had six or eight people working on different aspects of this. I, I published a dozen articles on my blog just about this specific issue alone. And if you look at any of my video presentations, such like my uh, Real Deal JFK special of 18 November 2021, uh, you'll see the facial superpositions. I've got it all included there. You'll see all the comparison, all the proof. And then another that I really like a lot was one done with uh, Jeremy Neal of South Africa, uh, James Fetzer on the JFK assassination cover-up. You can find them both if you go to my BitChute channel, Jim Fetzer, and just do it the search bar. They'll pop right up. You'll see all the evidence for yourself. I make it a habit. Of never making a claim I cannot substantiate. So I give you the evidence right there as I've explained how we know what I am declaring to be the case. Right. Yeah. So this is uh, this is something you think is uh, pretty well established. Um, oh, yeah. And, well, and, and I tend to. Yeah, I, I do tend to agree with you. And I want to talk about some more specific aspects of the JFK assassination and what we know for sure. Um, at this yeah. point, you know, many years later. Real quick, though, before we do that, um, I want to just have you address a, a sort of another broader question. Um, w once JFK came into office, and probably even before he, you know, he became president, he quickly made a lot of enemies. And I mean, I remember specifically reading the quote about how he wanted to shatter the CIA into a thousand pieces and scatter it to the winds, for example. And this was uh, said after the Bay of Pigs fiasco. So he had he had yeah. a, a number of conflicts with the CIA, with the military, with like the deep state in general. Um, can you sort of outline some of the main enemies of JFK sure. and why did these individuals and networks and deep state operatives want JFK out of the White House? What threat did he pose to their agenda? Absolutely, John. It's it's a perfect question. After the Bay of Pigs fiasco, he had Maxwell Taylor and Bobby investigate, discovered he'd been played by the CIA, that Castro already knew we were coming, that the Soviets had learned and they'd shared that information with Fidel. So the CIA itself knew, the Soviets knew, Fidel knew, everyone knew except the commander-in-chief who would have called it off had he known Castro was prepared for our invasion. He therefore... Having been gone, threatened to shatter the agency into a thousand pieces, he would retire. Richard Bissell and Charles Cabell, who were the deputy directors, uh, forthwith after those findings, and then with ceremony, retire Alan Dulles, 
from his role as director because of all this. Dulles, of course, would then be appointed to the Warren Commission by Lyndon. I mean, who better to have on the Warren Commission than someone who knows exactly how it was carried out? But clearly, the agency did not want to lose its power and threw in on the assassination. They were very important in coordinating different parties and how it was done. Indeed, the positioning of the shooters and the sequence of events appears to have been determined by Edward Lansdale, an Air Force general, was responsible for assassination around the world, including Operation Phoenix in Vietnam. Uh, Their their shooter appears to be a, a Dallas policeman who would actually be the body double for Lee in the backyard photographs and who may have killed as many as 50 different witnesses. It's really Roscoe White by name. His son discovered his father's diary. Now, you might think, what adult male has a diary? Well, CIA agents have to keep a diary so the agency will know where they actually were at the time they were committing actions on behalf of the agency, and they can fabricate. Uh, an alibi for them. They need those diaries. Well, his son, alas, turned the diary over to the FBI, and of course it disappeared forever, but they had their shooter in Dallas. The Joint Chiefs were upset by Jack because he had refused to invade Cuba in spite of their unanimous recommendation. He'd gone ahead and signed an above-ground nuclear test ban treaty with the Soviet Union despite their unanimous opposition. He was pulling all of our troops out of Vietnam, our so-called advisors, by the end of 1964, where they felt a stand had to be taken against uh, the expansion of international godless communism. They put up their shooter. It was an Air Force guy. who was given the rifle, it appears, by the, the, the head of the Air Force at the time, who was extreme right-winger Curtis LeMay. He was firing from inside the triple underpass fired a shot that went through the windshield and hit Jack in the throat by the name of Jack Lawrence. Now, the anti-Castro Cubans were upset with Jack because they believed he had betrayed them at the Bay of Pigs. Well, the CIA knew that was, in fact, false because he declared from the beginning there must be no overt U.S. participation here. But they went ahead and let the, the anti-Castro Cubans uh, hold that false belief and they put up their shooter, uh, Nestor Escadro, Tony Anthony Nestor Escadro, who was in the Dow Techs. He had a Mandelker Carcano. He fired three shots that were the only unsilent shots to set up an acoustical impression of at least three shots having been fired. But the weapon's so unreliable, it was known as a humanitarian rifle in World War II for never actually harming anyone on purpose. They had two misses. One went wild and hit a curbing and injured a distant bystander by the name of James Tagg. Another missed and hit a chrome strip above the windshield. We have the indent that pits Amanda Carcano to perfection. And then after the driver pulled the limousine to a halt, he shot and hit Jack in the back of the head, where Jack slumped forward, then Jack eased him back up, and he was hit in the right temple. By the shot fired by the mafia guy, Frank Sturgis, who actually may have been the best shot in the world at the time. This was a shot that blew his brains out the back of his head. Now, the mob was upset with Jag. You can find it in a book called Double Cross, because they believed they had an agreement with his father, Joe, 
that if uh, they helped Jack be elected, they'd make sure Chicago and therefore Illinois went for JFK, that then the administration would lay off the mob. Instead, Bobby was very aggressive, brought more indictments and convictions than ever before. So the mob was pissed off. And they put up Sturgis as their shooter. Then you have the the Fed, establishing the Fed, uh, Jack was, you know, thought it was ridiculous to pay a consortium of private banks interest for publishing the currency of the United States, when it could perfectly be done by the United States Treasury at no cost whatsoever. I recall as a young Marine Corps officer holding in my hand uh, uh, a, a, U, a United States note that had a red embossed imprint. That shooter appears to have been on the south knoll opposite the grassy knoll where there's a single tree. I have seen two photographs of the shooter staying there. You wouldn't think it could be done, but he was camouflaged. We don't yet know the name of that shooter. That's the one of the eight we haven't identified, but that's where he was. Uh, we have the Texas oil men had their own shooter. Jack was going to cut the oil depletion allowance, which they regarded as akin to their divine right. Their guy was a Dallas deputy sheriff by the name of Harry Weatherford, who was on top of the county records building with a 30 6 using a plastic collar known as a Sabo to implant a man that caught a bullet in the back, just as proof that bullet had been fired when the same weapon as Skadro was using. That was supposed to be proof then. He'd been hit by a man like Carcano. That's a bullet that worked its way out and was found by Sam Kenny and then put on the stretcher uh, because it's a... You know, I had a hand load. It was a special kind of shot. It was very shallow. But anyone who thinks, you know, that that was ridiculous just doesn't understand the details. I mean, there he was. That was the very first shot fired to implant that evidence. Then we had Lyndon Johnson's personal hitman was involved. He was uh, in the Dow Tex, but on the opposite side, firing John Connolly in the mistaken belief that was Ralph Yarbrough. Lyndon and JFK had a huge argument that morning uh, where Lyndon wanted to get Connolly out and Yarborough in, but Jack overrode him on the ground that the chief executive of the state should ride with the chief executive of the United States, and that settled it. It was too late to get the word out. So Mac Wallace, who killed a dozen people for Lyndon, including one of his his own sisters, uh, was there firing at, at Conley, and I think he hit him in the back and then may have hit him in the wrist. There might also have been a third hit. He hit him two or three times, but it was a whole separate deal and it had nothing to do with any magic bullet. I mean, they, then we had an Israeli shooter. This is a guy from the Bronfman, from Toronto, the Bronfman family, very deep into Israel, Mossad, and all that. They put up a shooter who I believe may be the only one alive today by the name of Clyde Porshaw, who has killed a lot of people in Toronto. The police are intimidated by this guy. And David Mantic, in addition to the shots I've already described, believes Jack was hit another time at the side of the head, virtually coincident with the time Sturgis hit, he entered the right temple. And I believe that would have been fired by Clay Forshaw, Clyde Porshaw. Very interesting. So there were 
a number of fa- any number of factions that wanted JFK out of the White House and were actively working to assassinate him. Right? I mean, basically, like that's oh, that's yeah, hundred percent, yeah, hundred percent, John. They all wanted the policies of Lyndon. So I mean, he kept the CIA. He he went to war in Vietnam. I mean, Oliver Stone displays a lot of this in a very successful and powerful faction. He didn't cut the oil depletion allowance. He let Israel go ahead and develop nukes. That is important for me to add, the motivation. Jack was at loggerheads with David Ben-Gurion, who was a founder and the first prime minister of Israel, because they wanted to develop their own nuclear weapons. Jack thought it would initiate a nuclear arms race in the Middle East, which he opposed. Ben-Gurion appears to have resigned in disgust after directing the Mossad to participate in the assassination. So Lyndon really did everything everyone could want, and the anti-Castro-Cubans got their revenge. They were the only who didn't have a concern about Lyndon's policies. They just wanted to retaliate against Jack. Everyone else had a policy benefit they derived. And the Fed kept printing money at interest, and now it's staggering. I mean, Jack had the right idea. And in fact, your lead article at the Bards Review is about the Fed in, in, you know, 1913, which has caused us, you know, massive headaches. I mean, it's been an albatross around the neck of the nation. What are we at now? I think the latest reporting is like $33 trillion in debt. I have no idea how that's even possible. Yeah, it's probably higher than that. I mean, how on earth does anybody think that's ever going to be paid back? I mean, it's just absolutely ridiculous. Um, you know, I have a fo- sort of a follow-up question. I mean, you had mentioned how, um, like, the CIA and um, the Soviets and even Castro himself knew about this plot, this the CIA plot to take out Castro and the whole Bay of Pigs situation. Um, but they didn't – they refused to tell JFK that the Soviets and, and Castro knew. Wh- why? Why was that? I mean, were they, like, actively trying to, like, create a war, like, create a conflict between oh, – yeah, they were, they were playing a young and experienced president. They were giving him the unpalatable options of either sending in the Marines or taking egg on his face. They were floored when Jack took responsibility, took the egg on his face, and didn't send in the Marines. They wanted to retake Cuba. Remember, Fidel had nationalized United Fruit and uh, Anaconda Copper down there. This is what the nationalist leaders do. They did it in Vietnam. They do it in Colombia. They do it in Chile. They do it in Libya, they'll, in Iran. They'll nationalize the resources for the benefit of the people of their own country. Well, the United States and the big corporations and the international oil company don't like that. So as Smedley Butler explained in his book, Let War is a Racket, they use American forces to set things straight. If you check out uh, Confessions of an Economic Hitman by John Perkins, I was just, just yeah. three different stages, you know, first they try to hook them on financial enterprises. They can't afford hydroelectric projects and the like. And then they loot their resources or if they resist, they'll send in jackals to foment coups and assassinations, steal elections. And if that still doesn't work, then they'll send in the Marines. They thought Jack was going to be compelled to send in the Marines. Yeah, very interesting. I was actually just thinking of that book, uh, Confessions of an Economic Hitman, and how he outlines this sort of, uh, you know, globalist, oligarchic strategy to undermine and, and ultimately 
eliminate the economic and even political sovereignty of, of some of these you know foreign nations um, and that certainly seems to be the case with what was going on in Cuba at the time um, now I, I kind of want to move on and talk about like specific aspects of the JFK assassination and what we know for sure which is really um, a, a, a main feature of your article and I mean some of these topics we've you, you know you've kind of already mentioned or, or sort of you know addressed a little bit but um, maybe we can just kind of take it topic by topic. Um, and one, I know that you had emailed and you wanted to specifically address is the the idea of the limo actually stopping. Do you want to first talk about that, address that angle to the assassination? <laughs> yes, 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 yes. And I written a more expansive version. A limo stop would have been crucial. Let me describe the motorcade. Came down Houston, uh came down Main Street, turned onto Houston at that intersection where half a dozen CIA agents who were paying their last respects. And then it turned from Houston on to Elm. Now, the motorcade was in the wrong sequence. A presidential motorcade historically is all uniform black Cadillacs typically, but the president's about in the middle. You have the lower ranking dignitaries, you have the mayor, then you have vice president work your way up to the president. I mean, after all, the people are coming to see Jack and Jackie. If they see Jack and Jackie, they're not going to care to hang around to the mayor or the vice president if they're behind him. But they put him out front so it'd be easier to identify for the shooters in the various locations around Dealey Plaza. In addition, instead of being uniform black limousines, these were cars of different makes and models, the company, that, you know, the, the dealership that put them out, which is the same dealership where Jack Lawrence actually went to work, and then where he returned after the assassination, all muddy and vomiting because he'd made his way out of Dealey Plaza through tunnels that are underneath uh, the ground there. Uh, they were different makes, models, and colors so that the conspirators would know exactly who was where. Now, that shot to the throat, had there been a normal arrangement, Jack's military aide would have sat in between the driver, William Greer, and the uh, agent in charge, Roy Kellerman. But he would have then been hit by the bullet that passed through the windshield. So they moved him to the very last vehicle, along with Jack's personal physician, meaning they were putting Admiral Berkeley in the least desirable position if the president were to need immediate medical attention, which they knew, of course, was going to be the case. So they make the turn from Houston onto Elm Street. Now, Greer mistook the frontage road in front of the Burke Depository for Elm Street, and he swung out too widely. He had a big concrete abutment there. He had to pause and get back into line. And that was so embarrassing and suggested the Secret Service didn't know what they were doing, that they actually edited it out. Now, at 18 frames per second, they edited out, I estimate, about 100 frames there, getting back in line. Now, we're seated down, then he's shot first in the bag by Weatherford at the top of the county records building. Then he's shot in the throat by a bullet out through the windshield from inside the triple underpass. There are other shots fired. For example, Roscoe White, who's in a police uniform and on the grassy knoll, has a pistol. He's got the easiest shot. But he's going to hit Jackie, and they're under strict instructions that she must not be harmed. So he pulls his shot. A bullet winds up in the grass opposite. It picks up by a, 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 a Dallas lieutenant and never seen again. Uh, then we have the driver pulling the limo to a halt. And, of course, meanwhile, 
you know, Nestor Tony Escadro has fired a couple of shots at miss that I've already described, hitting the distant curbing in the chrome strip. Then it brought to a halt. Nestor finally hits Jack in the back of the head. He slumps down. Jackie's back up. Then he's hit the right temple by Sturgis. And then if David's right, Forshaw hits him in the side of the head near simultaneously. And he slumps to the left. What happened is when they edited the film and they took it back to Hawkeye Works, a secret CIA lab adjacent to Kodak headquarters in Rochester, New York, they took out too many frames. They were trying to merge the shot to the back of the head with a shot to the right temple, which I explained in the double hit theory that Josiah Thompson did such good work on in his book, only to deny that his book provided any proof of conspiracy when there was a double hit theory, which he had scientifically documented so thoroughly, was proof right away, because you got a shot from behind and a shot from in front occurring in very near proximity, and they couldn't possibly have been fired by the same gunman. They took out too many frames, so you get this violent back into the left. No one in Dealey Plaza saw that violent back into the left. He simply slumped to the left. Now, by the way, yeah, Jackie then goes out after a big chunk of Jack's skull and brains on the trunk, and this is when Clint Hill rushes forward. Now, let me say, he rushes forward, he gets Jackie because they are not moving because these limousines are stationary. In fact, Bobby Hargis, right to the left, the guy was hit with a debris so hard he thought himself had been shot, gets off his bike, runs in between the limousines, which he could not have done had they been in motion, up to the grassy knoll from which he believed shots had been fired. Officer Douglas Jackson on the right actually motors his bike up on the grassy knoll before it falls over, and he proceeds as well. Chauncey Marvin Holt, whom I got to know personally, was working as a contract agent for the CIA at the Los Angeles Stamp and Stationery Store, where they were running an ID operation. He prepared the out. They prepared the Alec Heidel ID for Lee Oswald when he was in New Orleans. He was instructed by Philip Twombly, who was a CIA handler, to prepare 15 sets of Ford Secret Service credentials for use in and around Dealey Plaza. He told me how. He went, was supposed to leave him in a red pickup truck that was behind the grassy Noah parking lot, incidentally used by the Dallas Police Department, but it wasn't there. So he wandered around Dealey Plaza. He told me he saw more assassins and hitmen than you'd find at a Soldiers of Fortune convention. He went back, and the truck was there. So he left the Secret Service credentials and proceeded in the company of Charles Harrelson, Woody Harrelson, the actor's father, and Charles Rogers, whom he knew under the name of Richard Montoya, and they went to a boxcar they were told would appear to be locked, but actually would be open. When they got in, they found it was loaded with explosives, ammunition, and weapons. The train pulled out. They thought they got away scot-free, but the supervisor thought something was wrong and pulled him back, and they were arrested. I believe they were going to be the fallback patsies had the Lee role not played out as it did. Uh, but the point I'm making is when Baker and Douglas rushed up, they were confronted with a guy showing the Secret Service credentials. 
But Baker said, but he had grease under his nails, you know. It's because it was one of the participants, you know, using the fake ID. Plus, five agents dis dismounted from the Secret Service Cadillac, surrounded the limousine. One of them picked up a chunk of skull that a little boy had found, which I believe was the harbor fragment, a triangular chunk of, from the back of his head that they later returned Saturday to, only to be found by a medical student by the name of Billy Harper, and it's come to be known as the harbor fragment, into the car before they accelerated and got away. You know, I mean, there were various witnesses that they came to a stop. I don't know why they came to a stop. They came to a stop. Now, when you look at all the activity that took place during that stop, I originally thought it might be six or eight seconds, but actually I can't find that all that happened in less than 20. So if you're talking about 20 times 18.3, you're talking about another 400 frames. Now, the extant version of the film, John, has 487 frames. But when you add the, back in the 100 from the turn from Houston on down and 400 more, it ought to have been about a thousand frames had we a complete version of the assassination. But the fact is the limo stop was such a dead giveaway. You know, they had to alter, they took it out, they took out the turn. So we have a grossly edited film, but where John Costello is in absolutely brilliant work on the extant version, establishing that although it's about 98% technically authentic, or in other words, appearing to be genuine, the other 2% give it away. For example, there's a Stemmons freeway sign that's captured, but if you compare where the sign was from photograph before and after the editing of the film, they put it back in the wrong location. I mean, it's very it's striking, apparently because there was a bullet hole in the sign that would have you know, revealed that the government was peddling nonsense, so they replace it, but they did so improperly. They also blacked out a blowout at the back of Jack's head in early frames. I mean, in terms of the numbers, and every frame has a number, 213 is the one where they claim you see the hit to the head. It's actually a fabrication in and of itself. They painted in blood spray and so forth, but they very crudely blacked out the hole in the back of his head from... 14, 15, 16, 17, for example. Thus, it occurred to me that perhaps since they were focusing so much on these early frames, they might have overlooked that it could be visible in later frames. And indeed, in frames where Jackie's getting up to get out, after that chunk of his skull and brains, you can actually see the blood at the back of his head. It's bluish gray. You've he heard the word gray matter, frame 374. And then there's this pinky skull flap open, apparently from that fifth shot, that third shot to the head, that blew open a crescent-shaped uh, skull, but it was still attached to the head. It looked pink. That's not the blowout. The, the blowout back of the head is bluish-gray. But you can see it very clearly in frame 374. David Mantic, meanwhile, the expert in radiation oncology, had studied the x-rays and determined using a method from physics known as optical densitometry that enables you to calculate the relative density of the object whose exposure to radiation created the image. There was an area he identified as area P that was made of material far too dense so that unless JFK's skull was nothing but solid bone, unless JFK were a bonehead, this was a uh, 
not a naturally occurring phenomenon. And if you compare Azaria P with what I found, the blowout in frame 374, there's a very close approximation, except his hair partially overlaps. So they're not quite the same, but they're sure a good match. And it's obvious that's what we're talking about here. Then they drove off to Parkland, see, and they would steal the body. Once they got the body, they could alter it. The physicians there made efforts to save him, but if the Thomas Evan Robinson, who was the physician who prepared the body for the funeral, they wound up doing closed casket rather than open because they said the body they were looking at didn't even look like Jack, and I believe it wasn't actually Jack they were looking at. Uh, that there was no discoloration to the face, meaning he died instantly. In other words, Jack died when that bullet entered the right temple and blew half his brains out the back of his head. How else could it be? So when the physicians claim, you know, that there was some, still some pulse, I mean, uh, in my opinion, that's pretty far-fetched. He was most certainly dead. And I think Thomas Evan Robinson got it right. There's more to the story, John. Yeah. Those are basic. Those are the yeah, basic. no, that's, yeah, it's fascinating. I, and I do want to ask you more about the medical evidence and what we know about it. Um, sure. But getting back to, well, we, I mean, we had talked about the, the limo stop, and that sort of gets into the way the assassination is depicted in film, in the Zapruder film. That's probably the most famous one. There were also other films, though, right? Like the Nick's film, and I yeah. think there was even others. So basically, at this point, I mean, we know for sure that these films depicting the assassination itself were, in fact, altered. I mean, is yeah. the limo stop even, it's not even in any of these films, right? Like no, that. no, of yeah. course not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that was their most important task was to remove it. Right. But, Be- but because it was such a dead giveaway, I mean, they stopped the car to allow all these different shooters to fire their yeah. fire their shots, right? Yeah. That's exactly right, John. But if you look at the eyewitness testimony, something John did that was quite brilliant. I have two sites that are related to the assassination. One, my original assassinationscience.com. But John and I co-edited Assassination Research, and he published a piece about the eyewitnesses. And if you just read the eyewitness reports, you see all these inconsistencies with the exit version of the Zapruder film. In other words, what the witnesses saw was quite different. Than what's depicted in the film, right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Plus, plus, I know five or six who have seen what they refer to as the other film, some have seen it as many as three different times, and they confirm the limo stop, the abrupt stop, the passenger were jostled forward, and the 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 you know the other events I've been describing here that took place. So we we have witness reports who've actually seen it. We have the eyewitnesses in Dealey Plaza at the time. We have the internal features of the film that prove that it's been edited. Then we have comparisons, for example, between the Knicks and the Zapruder. When Clint Hill rushes up in the Zapruder, he never makes physical contact with Jackie. But in the Knicks, he does make physical contact with Jackie. So while they use the Zapruder as their guideline to edit the Knicks, they were not completely successful in achieving their objective. Boy, there's a lot to this assassination conspiracy, isn't there? (laughs) When you get down to all these details, it's incredible. Um, Now... 
obvious, I mean, you've sort of talked about like the Secret Service being involved in this. I mean, obviously they were the ones driving the vehicle that he was in, right? So they would have been involved in stopping the limousine to allow for this hit, right? When Nigel Turner did uh, episode seven, The Smoking Guns, he was interviewing me, David Mantic, my colleagues who had done all this research exposing what really happened. And he had me talk about 15 indications of Secret Service complicity that I'd identified, including leaving two of the agents behind at Love Hill. These were two guys who would have been beside the limousine or in the back of the limousine. They were just left behind at Dealey Plaza. They didn't want them involved. Now, Emery Roberts, who was in charge of the JFK security detail that day, deliberately left him behind. He was a key player in the carrying out the assassination. Then, as I mentioned, they had all the limousines in the wrong order and sequence. Anyone with experience with security would know immediately this was all wrong. They didn't weld the manhole covers shut. They didn't close the windows. There were lots of open windows. They even have a situation where the mob, they, they ordered the 110th Military Intelligence Battalion to stand down. They would have distributed, you know, forced throughout the city to control the crowd. The crowd was spilling out into the street eight or 10 feet deep. I have one image that's stunning. There's actually a bus. You got the Kennedy limo beside a bus as the crowd is spilling out. Well, an assassin with a handgun could have shot him from the bus. And then, then they changed the motorcade route. That was done on the 18th. John Connolly was instrumental there. So that instead of going straight up to Main Street, which they could have done to get to their destination with a trademark, which, by the way, was a secondary location. If they didn't take him out in Dealey Plaza, they were going to take him out of the trademark. It had all kinds of back balconies open and closed and all that. Or as the ultimate backup, he was going to be fed at Lyndon Johnson's ranch, and that was obviously the least desirable but it was a circumstance where Lyndon would have complete control to finish the job. So they, they had, you know, three plans. But in fact, with Oswald, it worked out with Oswald. But in addition, then, they uh, uh, were responsible for taking, you know, a bucket of water and a sponge. Greer, of course, pulled the limo to the left to set him up. There's Secret Service again, getting a bucket of water and a sponge, destroying evidence there again. They took control of the x-rays and the autopsy photographs, too. And the next time we see them, they've been altered. I mean, the Secret Service played a key role throughout. We they forcibly, they, John, they forcibly removed the body by Texas law. The only crime that had been committed was murder. And that required by law that an inquest be conducted. And in fact, it was uh, Earl Rose was a medical examiner. He was first rate. I got his autopsy on Officer Dibbett. It was excellent. If Earl Road had been allowed, we would never have been played. So they knew that. They forcibly took, they even brandished their weapons to get the body out, out of Parkland Hospital. They put it into a, it was in a bronze ceremonial casket. They loaded on Air Force One. And then when Lyndon was being sworn in, he got that nice photograph in the Barnes Review. They were actually taking the body out of the casket, putting it in a body bag. There was a compartment at the back of the plane. So when it landed at Andrews, and all eyes were focused on disloading, unloading the bronze casket with Jackie and Bobby. I mean, what a what a television event. 
They're actually offloading the body on the other side into a helicopter. They took it to Walter Reed where the best forensic pathologists in the military removed metal fragments because each of the shooters was using his own preferred weapon and then transported it in a black limousine to the back of the morgue at Bethesda while the public was following a gray Navy and a limousine and a huge entourage with Jackie, which had an empty casket. So that, that, that uh, the actual radiation technician, Gerald Custer, who took the x-rays at JFK, was proceeding upstairs to have them developed in the company of a couple of Secret Service when he looked out. You know, saw this huge entourage and Jackie coming up to the front. He went, well, what the hell is going on? Because Jack was already on the slab undergoing autopsy. Wow, fascinating. Well, and, you know, I was going to mention, um, we have a good image. Um, I think it's actually the second page of your article in the magazine of the um, the secret the Secret Service vehicle. And they're actually literally like, as as you mentioned, they took a bucket and they they began immediately cleaning up the blood and the brain matter in the actual yeah, limousine, which right, I mean again a a destruction right, of evidence. A, yeah, that's a presidential limousine, but based upon my research, it was Sam Kenny who was a driver of the Secret Service Cadillac who found the bullet. He confided in a neighbor, but insisted that it not be revealed to the public until after his death. And, you know, thus we get the whole fanciful story. It would turn out, you see, that when they discovered James Cage had been injured by a shot that missed, even though the Secret Service and the FBI had concluded three shots with three hits, Jack in the back, Connolly in the back, Jack in the back of the head, killing him, they had to cut it down to two. And that's when they came up with a fanciful invention of the magic bullet. So you could account for all these wounds. You move the back shot up to be a back of the neck shot. You convert the entry wound in the throat into an exit wound. And even though it's anatomically impossible, you claim it proceeded to injure Conley. So you now no longer need a separate shot for Jack in the back and for Conley in the back and for Jack in the back of the head. And then you come back and have Jack hit in the back of the head. But now it's all done with only two bullets because one was a miss. Wow. Man, there's so much fraudulent activity, so much <laughs> just fakery. It's incredible with this. Now, an another thing, and I know we had this in the caption of the, of the photo of the presidential limousine. Didn't they actually remove the windshield as well because it had a bullet hole through it? Well, Lyndon had the vehicle sent back to Ford and had it completely torn down and rebuilt. That included removing the windshield. Now, a brilliant guy now deceased from Michigan did a wonderful essay about the windshield in my second collection of expert essays by experts. And he found the Ford official who was responsible for its replacement who confirmed that there was a through-and-through -through bullet hole and that the beveling was on the inside, meaning it had been shot from outside to in. That was Douglas Weldon, J.D. He was an attorney, did a brilliant piece of work on this. So they put in a brand-new windshield. Now, Bob Livingston, M.D., was a world authority on the human brain and an expert on wound ballistics. He was a scientific director of two of the National Institutes uh, uh, for Neurological Diseases and for Blindness. 
have learned that the Secret Service had acquired 20 windshields. They claimed for target practice. But what they wanted them was they knew the shot was going to be fired through the windshield, so they wanted to replace it. And they would produce a different windshield that had a little spider crack from a fragment from behind, you know, from the from the rear of the limousine that they claimed was what had been on the vehicle in Dealey Plaza, but it's easy to prove it was not. You can do that based on the altions, but we also have all this history. And of course, as I mentioned in the article, David Mantig inferred the explanation when Thomas Evan Robinson who prepared the body for burial, discovered that embalming fluid was leaking through two little shrapnel wounds in JFK's face, which he had to pack with wax, that those had been caused by tiny shards of glass that had been released when the bullet passed through the windshield. Just brilliant inference by David. Wow. Yeah, and well, you know what? I wanted to ask you specifically about the medical evidence, but you've kind of <laughs> elaborated on all of it, I think. Was there any other any other points or like a summary of like the medical evidence? Because I mean, they were literally tampering with with everything. I mean, with the crime scene itself, right. cleaning, cleaning up the limousine, you know, manipulating um, and, and and replacing the windshield, and even the actual like the X-rays and, and the body of the president himself, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's exactly right. Uh, they altered the X-rays to conceal the blowout to the back of the head. When David first went in, this was in. November of 1992, we'd already linked up, and he told me he thought he'd find evidence of a second shot to the head, and also that the autopsy x-rays had been altered. He has confirmed all of the autopsy x-rays are non-original. There's not a single original JFK autopsy in the National Archives. Uh, Bob Livingston- World none, of, none of them are authentic? Not, a, not a single one. Wow. Not a single one. And, you know, they it, it was really quite brilliant because JFK had been a naval officer. Though, so they had authentic JFK x-rays in the National, it, it, at Bethesda Hospital. So I'm convinced the bullet that hit Jack in the throat appears to have hit some bony structure and fragmented part going down in his right lung and part upward into the brain to sever this tough membrane that covers the cerebellum, which is a compact part of the brain at the base. Bob Livingston is convinced that what the uh, Parkland physicians observed, namely extruding cerebral but also cerebellar tissue, would have been impossible, physically impossible, had the tentorium not been ruptured, and that it would not have been ruptured even by the near simultaneous hits to the head. So it was his inference that that bullet that fragmented part had to have gone up or to rupture the tentorium. And he explained this to me personally, and I, I'm absolutely convinced. But what they did to cover it up was substituted an old chest x-ray of Jack. I mean, they did not only had a fake x-ray, they had, they had a real x-ray of John F. Kennedy of a part of his body that did not show the damage that he'd actually incurred during the assassination. Quite brilliant. Bob also noticed they substituted another brain for the brain of JFK. Remember, half his brain was blown out in Dealey Plaza? 
Well, they subjected a brain that was virtually completely intact. They showed a completely intact cerebellum. But if you had cerebellum and you know cerebral and cerebellar tissue extruding, then we got six, seven, or eight positions at Parkland who describe this, where the difference in the the brain matter is very dis distinct. I would put it roughly. The cerebellum would be kind of like hamburger, kind of finely ground. The gray matter would be more like maggoty, more maggoty or kind of little wormy. So this is a difference first-year students of medicine wouldn't mistake. So he observed this couldn't possibly be the brain of JFK. They did that. And then, of course, they edited the film. Now, why all these things are so important, John, is the following. If you want to eliminate suspects, just consider the, the the mafia could not have extended its reach into Bethesda Naval Hospital to alter x-rays under control of medical officers of the U.S. Navy and the Secret Service. The KGB couldn't have substituted another brain for the brain of JFK. Anti-Castro Cubans couldn't have got a hold of the Zapruder film to alter it in such a sophisticated way. In other words, those are all dead ends. They go nowhere, and that's why... Shattering the cover-up narrows the range to really just that it was a CIA op or that it was something a bit more elaborate, and it turns out it was something a bit more elaborate, as I've been explaining. Right, yeah, well, and that kind of leads to basically a couple, like, sort of kind of concluding questions I want to I wanna pose to you. Um, I mean, obviously the CIA played a role in the assassination, but it seems like there were multiple factions right that sort of coordinated to come together to take out jfk the cia may have played like a leading kind of coordinating role do you think that's an accurate statement roughly yeah see noel twyman in his magisterial book bloody trees in 1997 was the first to put it together noel was a retired engineer and he thought about how what would it take to create a perfect assassination scheme and he reasoned it would entail bringing together the CIA with the mafia. And the CIA and mafia were two sides of the same coin in relation to Castro. The mafia was committing hits for the government in, in the U.S. and the CIA hits for the government abroad with the Joint Chiefs and with the Secret Service. And where Lyndon Johnson was in a perfect position to coordinate all these efforts. And, of course, obviously, being from Texas, the oil men. So he was in a position to facilitate the assassination. That was his role. And then he assigned Edgar, J. Edgar Hoover, who hated the Kennedys as much as did LBJ, the task of investigating, so investigative authority, which precluded about a half a dozen investigations that were actually making headway in Texas and elsewhere in the House and the Senate. I mean, we actually might have got somewhere, but Lyndon had been in the position, see, because he was going to become president, he could guarantee no one would ever be punished or pay a penalty for having participated in the assassination. Ultimately, he would have the power of pardon. But by using JFK to filter the evidence, and when they moved it from Dallas to Washington, D.C., they made substitutions. They took the Mandlicker Carcano that was in the Daltex and replaced it with the one in the in the book depository, replaced it with the one in the Daltex. They took the handgun that 
Lee had originally had to replace it. So you get a match. I mean, the whole template shooting was just a farce. There were four shell casings that were found at the scene that had been ejected from automatics, and they were of two different brands, Remington Rand and Western, implying two different shooters. A woman across the street at Quilla Clemens said that there were two shooters and neither of them looked like Oswald. Nevertheless, they, they planted a jacket in a wallet with that Oswald ID in it. And nevertheless, when he was arrested at the Texas theater where he'd gone to meet his handler, he had a wallet, an ID in it. So what's a guy carrying two wallets? I mean, the whole thing was a farce. They made a lot of mock-ups. They got a lot of things wrong. Besides, given that Tippett was shot with automatics, and Lee only had a revolver. They had to change the evidence because the first officer on the scene had put his initials on the four rounds that had been ejected from automatics, and they replaced them, uh, which were two and two in terms of brand, and he replaced them with four revolver casings that, that were three of one make and one of the other. I mean, Robert Groton has a wonderful discussion about the Tippett shooting in his book, The Search for Lee Harvey Oswald. And while I fault him and, and Josiah Thompson, I believe they were limited hangouts, letting part of the truth come out. To establish their credibility, they had to do some good work. And both of them, I freely admit, did a lot of good work. But in the end, Josiah was going to do a whole series of uh, video episodes coming up to the 50th that was going to debunk conspiracy. And the first one was about an umbrella man who's pumping an umbrella, which was a signal to all the shooters in Dealey Plaza that his target's still alive, keep shooting. And, and I debunked it. I mean, he did this showing his cards that he was going to explain away all the evidence of conspiracy. And after I debunked it rather thoroughly, they abandoned the project. But Rodin, to this day, insists the Zabruder film is authentic, which, frankly, is simply absurd. So right. got, yeah. with all that, the attempts to cover up even within the JFK research community itself. Yeah, and you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about the long suppressed role that Israel could have played and in like this international network of of Zionists and, and sympathizers of Israel. And I think that sort of kind of dovetails with, with the mafia's connections to the JFK assassination. And even like, I mean, wh what do you know about like, what was uh, JFK's purpose of even being in Dallas that day? Wasn't there some sort of like Israeli connection to that as well? He was going to be speaking at... No, no but Lyndon had orchestrated the whole thing. He wanted Jack to come in to make peace in the wings of the Democrat Party in Texas. And this is why he wanted to get Yarbrough in. Yarbrough was a liberal that Lyndon despised. He wanted him in the limousine. He wanted Connolly, who was his crony, had been his campaign manager out. The whole event originated in 1960 in Los Angeles, John. When JFK beat LBJ for the presidential nomination, he invited Stuart Symington of Missouri to be his running mate, but gave him overnight to think about it. Meanwhile, Bobby went to the Johnson suite to extend a pro forma, just a symbolic gesture, invitation to run with Jack, never imagining he'd have the least interest, and was astonished when Lyndon jumped on it and said, He'd exposed that Jack had Addison's disease and wasn't expected to live a long, healthy life, and 
that among his dalliances was one with a beautiful woman who was a spy for East Germany, if he were not on the ticket, moreover, he said, he would bottle up any legislative proposals sent down by the White House in his position as a powerful majority leader of the Senate. They'd all be dead on arrival. Well, Jack and Bobby tried to figure a way out, but they were boxed in, and they had to accede to Lyndon's demand. Well, when one of Johnson's wealthy backers learned he was going to be running with Jack, he burst into the Johnson suite cursing and swearing, because now LBJ would help JFK become president. Bobby Baker took him into a bedroom and explained what they had in mind. He came out all smiles and said he thought that was an excellent plan. Bobby Baker would later declare in public that JFK would not live out his first term and that he would die a violent death. And when it came time, Lyndon said his chief administrative assistant, Cliff Carter, down to Dallas to make sure all the arrangements were in place for the assassination. So this really was all the way with LBJ. I mentioned the Israeli linkage, and I know Michael Collins Parker Piper, Piper yeah. published this brilliant book, yeah, Final Judgment, but they were only a part. There were eight hitmen, only one represented Israel, and he came from Toronto in the Bronwyn family with close ties to Israel, where David Gengurian flew in on it because Jack was frustrating their desire to develop nuclear weapons in Israel. So it, it was not an Israeli op. If you were to just try to simplify it, it was far more orchestrated by the CIA, but Israel had a part. Now, the role of Israel in 9-11 is simply overwhelming, but that's a story for another day. I'll just tell you, anyone who thinks Israel is our gallant ally in the Middle East, that he's a friend of the United States, does not understand the facts of the matter, the grim reality, which is 100% different. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and that's putting it very, very lightly for sure. Um, Dr. Fetcher, I wanted to read briefly uh, – just a, a section of an editorial that I wrote for this issue, um, kind of addressing both of the main themes. Uh, one, the, the year 1913 and how that was such a monumental, pivotal year in American history. And also 1963. And then I want to ask you one final question. And I write here in this op-ed here, or this editorial, the public murder of President Kennedy just 50 years, 50 years after 1913 demonstrated to the entire world the low regard the powers that be have for the people of this country and the entire world. The fanciful lone gunman fairy tale outlined and codified by the Warren Commission and systematically institutionalized by the mass media and political establishment proved just how much contempt the forces of the deep state have for the American public. The people were expected to uncritically accept one of the more absurd official narratives peddled in U.S. history, namely that Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone when killing JFK. And then I go on to say that while much remains classified in regard to the assassination of Kennedy, what we have discovered in the 60 years since the murder of the 35th president thoroughly demolishes the official lone gunman narrative. At this point, the lone gunman narrative has been as debunked as the official conspiracy theory explaining the 9-11 terrorist attacks 
or the alleged Holocaust of 6 million Jews at the behest of Hitler's government during World War II. Um, and I'd encourage people to check out the rest of that editorial um, in this issue of the magazine. And I also kind of address just why the JFK assassination is still so important today, nearly 60 years later. And I would like for you to address that question as we conclude here. Oh, John, that was an excellent paragraph. I agree with all of it, all of it. And uh, it was a pivotal event in American history. I mean, Jack was going to dismantle the CIA. That would have been a huge good. He was going to keep us out of the war in Vietnam. That would have been a huge good. He was going to cut the oil depletion allowance. That would have been a huge good. He was going to... uh, Prosecute the mafia, full steam ahead, that was a huge good. He was going to get rid of the Fed or abolish and have the Department of the Treasury print our money, that was a huge good. He was going to uh, stop Israel from the development of nuclear weapons, that was a huge good. I mean, just think how different this country would have been now. Conservatives at the time were alarmed because they could foresee Jack serving two terms and then Bobby two terms and then Teddy two more. They foresaw a Kennedy dynasty. They decided to cut off the threat at the start by taking out Jack. And it's a great pity because every administration since, we've had a series of presidents who would never have become president had it not been for his death. Obviously, Lyndon himself. Then Richard Nixon, who actually was at the ratification meeting the night before at the home of Clint Murkison Sr., he threw in about the assassination of Jack. And we had, of course, when we got uh, Gerald Ford, Ford had been Hoover's man on the commission, keeping Edgar aware of the development so he could anticipate and uh, deal with them from the point of view of evidence. Uh, Then we had. When Ronald Reagan became Jimmy Carter, so far as I can tell, was clean as a hound's tooth. I have no fault with Jimmy, but that was an accident. When Ronald became president, they had to send him the message of let George do it by a shot that was actually administered by a Secret Service agent pushing him into the limousine. It wasn't John Hinckley who shot Ronald Reagan, but he got the message. So his vice president, George Herbert Walker Bush, who, by the way, had not only supervised the Bay of Pigs, but was actually in Dealey Plaza. He was inside the Daltex building supervising Nestor Tony Escadro when he fired those three shots with a man liquor Carcano and he was arrested coming out of the building and identified himself as a Houston oil man, which was his cover. When he was first appointed director of CIA, they claimed he the first time they had a civilian with no past history, but, that, of course, that was just utter false nonsense. I mean, our government does nothing but lie again and again and again. And of course, George Herbert Walker Bush was paving the way for eventually W911, Dick Cheney played a key role. We have suffered mightily because of the death of JFK and powerful forces who are not keen on advancing the interests of America, but rather their own personal profit motive more often than not and control over the course of this nation have a grip that we have yet to break free of 
I believe Donald Trump has represented a massive threat because he undoes so much of what they have been able to manage up to this point in time and is one more explanation why they're so fiercely trying to keep him off the ballot in 2024. But I have to observe that we don't correct the electoral system. Barack Obama, in his last act, put the election system of the U.S. designated as critical infrastructure under the control of Homeland Security, which has the ability to monitor and change votes down to the precinct level. To put it in rather vivid language, the Republicans could run Jesus Christ as their candidate and they'd still lose because of the way the Democrats control our voting system. If we don't get back to paper ballots and hand counts, John, I foresee only bad for this nation. We're in the process of a course of destruction involving the massive migration, the failure to enforce the laws, the corruption of the legal system, the weaponization of law enforcement, using all of our resources to fight wars, to benefit Israel and the Jews. Ukraine was supposed to be the new Israel. That's why we were so fiercely fighting. And now they've lost. They're doing everything they can to cleanse Palestine of Palestinians. Genocide taking before place before our very eyes, and the U.S. government is all in. John, Absolutely. we reach a tragic point in the history of the United States. Sad to say. Yes, I completely agree, and its roots go back to 1913, and certainly to 1963, with the assassination of JFK. Dr. Fetcher, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. I would once again encourage people to check out the latest issue of the Barnes Review. It is the November-December 2023 issue. It's the the final issue of this year. Um, it is excellent. We've got some great material on the JFK assassination, including Dr. Fetcher's article that we discussed at length throughout this podcast. So, Jim, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Um, I wish you a happy Thanksgiving. Keep up the great work. I will have links over to your website and your Twitter X feed, as well as your BitChute channel for people to check out your work. Wonderful, John. This has been a great interview. I'm very glad to have the opportunity to round out what I explained in the article in Barnes Review. And my congratulations to the editing staff. They're doing a super job with a journal. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. You take care, and I'll talk to you soon. Thank you, John. Okay.